You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We're continuing a series of messages that was began by Sean at the beginning of December. Sean has been preaching a series of sermons regarding Christmas hymns. You seem surprised. Well, I am preaching on a Christmas hymn this morning. The passage that was just read to you is a Christian hymn that was sang by many in the early church. Uh, It was a common hymn that was sung. And it displays more than any other passage in all of the New Testament, the qualities of who Jesus is, his person, his work, his nature, which reminds me of perhaps one of the more defining points and turning points in the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. As Jesus is anticipating his death, which we commemorate on Good Friday, and his resurrection. As he's anticipating this suffering, he turns to his disciples and he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples responded, well, some say Elijah. Others say John the Baptist. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus turns to them and he says, Who do you say that I am? To which Peter responded, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And ever since Jesus uttered that question, this question has been debated. Recently in an interview, with Bono, the lead singer of U2, this subject came up. The interviewer brought up Christianity, and he made the assessment or the assertion that Christ ranks as amongst the world's great thinkers. But son of God? Isn't that far-fetched? To which Bono responded, Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. He had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ does not allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I am the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. Bono continued. So what you are left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. This man was strapping himself to a bomb and had king of the Jews on his head as they were putting him up on the cross and was going, okay, martyrdom, 
Here we go. Bring on the pain. I can take it. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase for me, that's far-fetched, end of quote. And so when we consider who Jesus is, we must understand that this doctrine has eternal implications. Your destiny matters based upon what you, how you answer that question. Who do you say that I am? John 8, 24, Jesus raises those stakes when he says, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth that if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so this doctrine, this question has eternal implications. But it's not enough to have the right doctrine of Christ. It is not enough to have the right orthodoxy. Which brings me to the question, second question. What will you do with Christ? The demons have right orthodoxy. The demons have better orthodoxy than most modern-day ministers. And they tremble before the Son of God. We must not only believe right things about Christ, we must surrender ourselves to Him and put our trust in Him as Savior and Lord and recognize that we ourselves are guilty and defiled and that Christ is the only source of our pardon and forgiveness. Doctrine matters. And one's Christology, which is the study of Christ, matters. And if we are wrong about the person, work, and nature of Christ, we are wrong enough to lose our soul. And Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. He writes, I'm a little slow today. I'm sorry. I'm a little slow. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, he says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Do you understand what Paul is saying there? There's another Jesus. Indeed, there is a smorgasbord of Jesuses out there 
false Jesus. Who do you say that I am? That Jehovah Witness that comes knocking at your door with his tracts and booklets. Or the modern-day minister that stands behind the pulpit who denies all of the historic doctrines of the faith. Or you're driving down the road and you see a billboard sign claiming something about Jesus. Everybody wants to claim Jesus. And everybody wants to redefine Jesus. And this is a satanic assault that has been happening ever since Jesus uttered the question, who do men say that I am? First John 4, John the Apostle also warns us in First John 4, verses 1 through 3, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see they, whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And, this is, and all this is nothing new, by the way. From the earliest days of the church, the doctrine of Christ, Christology, has been under siege. And in the early councils of the church, it was a centerpiece. We just read there in 1 John, whoever does not confess Jesus coming in the flesh is of Antichrist. And it was docetism that denied the humanity of Christ in the early church at, that was condemned. We read from the Council of Nicaea earlier in 325 AD, the center point was Arianism, which denied the deity of Christ, that he is God. And at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, which I want to highlight here, it was the monophysite heresy. That word mono comes from the word one, and physite means from fusis, which is nature. This heresy taught that within the person of Christ, there was a convergence, a mixture of his natures, his deity and his humanity into one nature. Thus, they diminished Christ's deity and deified his humanity. And it was rightfully condemned. And at the Council of Chalcedon, the Latin phrase, Christ was vera homo, vera deos, meaning he was truly man and truly God. Two natures in one person. The natures of Christ, his deity and his humanity, not separate, but distinguished, not confused, not converged. This is the supreme and unfathomable mystery that we just celebrated at Christmas. J.I. Packer writes regarding this. He says that the supreme mystery 
in which the gospel confronts us is not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, as important as they are, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. It is here that in the thing that happened at the first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. How are we to think of the incarnation? How are we to think of this doctrine? The New Testament does not encourage unwarranted speculations as we wrestle with the physical and psychological problems that it raises. As Christians, we must learn to live with mystery and worship God with awe for his love that was shown in this great act of self-humiliation. And that is what will be the focal point of our text. So turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, a little background. Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi in the early 60s A.D., from a prison cell in Rome. And Paul has been imploring the Philippians towards humility and, and selflessness and unity. And Paul has modeled that, by the way. Paul is writing from a jail cell while... Many are trying to usurp his authority and take his place. In chapter 1, he referenced them. He, he said they preach Christ out of envy and strife. And Paul says, as long as Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. Because for Paul, it's not about Paul. It's about Jesus Christ. And so he models that. But then he points us to the, the ultimate example, which is in Jesus Christ which we'll get into the imperative there in verse 5, but Christ is the ultimate example. But my desire here is not to preach on the important virtues of humility and selflessness and unity. My desire is to paint a picture of this great hymn to showcase this incomparable mystery that should leave us standing in awe and marvel at the wonder that is Jesus Christ. Dennis Johnson, the commentator, has said that this passage is a majestic mountain peak towering over the surrounding countryside. It is a pinnacle of theological truth, piercing the heavens and probing the mystery of the incarnation. Its dramatic movement traces the inverted arc of Christ's redemptive mission from divine 
glory down into humiliation and death and then up again to heaven's heights in resurrection splendor. And it begins with an, an imperative, which ends a series of imperatives in chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Real briefly, Paul is appealing to our union with Christ. And he is exhorting the church at Philippi, and he's exhorting us today to think of each other and let our perspective, and as we think of each other, let our perspective be formed by our shared identity in Christ, our union with Christ. But the imperative here leads to the indicative. And as we consider the rest of this hymn in verses 6 through 11, we need to understand that it is a picture of if you want to break it down, in verse 6 of, of Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate divine glory, in verses 7 through 8, we see his self-humiliation. Picture the ark, divine glory, humiliation, and then in verses 9 through 11, exaltation. Or to put it another way, Christ's dissension and then his ascension. Look at verses, at the end there of verse 5, the antecedent, Jesus, Christ Jesus, the antecedent, and then verse 6, who. So who is the who? The who is Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, literally, in his being, he is very God. Some translations uh, are, utter it differently, but the idea is that Christ, in his very essence, is God. That's his essential nature. He was in the form of God. It is who he is. It is innate. It is unalterable. It is unchangeable. Jesus is God, both in, in his pre-incarnate state, for instance, in John 1.1. 1, 1, I think it was quoted earlier. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was face-to-face -face with God. Face-to-face. -face. The Son was face-to-face -face with the Father in his pre-incarnate state. John 8, 58, verses, John 8, verses 58 through 59, Jesus is speaking with the religious leaders of his day, and he says to them, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew what he was talking about. He was referencing an Old Testament passage in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God says to Moses from the burning bush, tell them I am has sent you. And they picked up rocks to stone him. In his pre-incarnate state, Jesus is God. In his incarnate state, he is God. He was made flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1, 23. 
Colossians 2, 9 says, For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. In his essence, he is God. And as God, he is worshipped as God. In John 20, 28, the Apostle Thomas, the doubting Thomas, when he finally realized who was standing in front of him, when he finally realized that this is the resurrected Jesus Christ standing in front of him, he says to him, the Lord of me and the God of me. And he worshiped. Jesus was God. He is God. He will always be God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Revelation chapter 1. And he, he exists, look at verse 6. He, he exists in the form of God. That word form is, in the Greek is morphe. It has the idea that he has the, the character qualities of God. The, Jesus is not only in his essence God, he has the attributes of God. And he displayed those attributes at times when he walked this earth. For instance, he displayed omnipotence when he told this, this, the raging storm to be still. When he commanded demons to depart. When he performed miracles. When he raised the dead. Jesus exists in the form of God. He has his being in the form of God. And he exhibits the attributes of God. He also, in his earthly ministry, demonstrated his omniscience, did he not? Uh, when he confronted the, the woman in Samaria, the Samaritan woman, he told her life story before he even knew her. And he exposed the darkest of secrets. Jesus knows everything. When he told Peter, you will deny me before the the, the before the crow, I'm struggling. My back. Um, he told Peter that he would deny him three times, and uh, and it came to pass. Um, and so we we find with Jesus that he exists in his essence as God, and he demonstrates the attributes of God. He also does the works of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. It'll be on the overhead. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, verses 16. Jesus, he does the works of God. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So he, he, as he created all things. He is sovereign over all things. He has providence over all things. He holds them all together. They were all made for him. And every inch of this universe belongs to Christ. He is God in essence. He has the attributes of God. He does the works of God. 
and he receives worship as God. Look at verse 6, the latter part there. It says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's an interesting phrase. The word grasped there has the idea of seize or clutch. Um, Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be seized or clutched. But on occasion, in, as he walked this planet, Jesus claimed equality with God. These texts are problematic for those who deny the deity of Christ. For instance, John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus says, I and, the Father, and my Father, we are one. Two persons present in that text, the Father and the Son. Equality with God. And the Jewish leaders understood exactly what Jesus meant and picked up stones to throw at him and chased him out of the city. This word grasped, however, has been usurped by one high angel named Lucifer. Lucifer, the highest of angels, thought that this was something to be seized. He said, I will be like the Most High. And he was cast down. And he became the devil, Satan, God's adversary. But Jesus did not feel, Jesus did not need to seize it. He did not hold it with a death grip clutch. He is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being one substance with the Father, which we quoted in the Nicene Creed. Look at verses, look at verse 7, because Jesus Christ is truly God, but he's, he's also truly man. And the key phrase in this passage, I believe, is, is here at the beginning of verse 7. It says, but he emptied himself. That word, that phrase, empty, is from the Greek word which we get, kenosis, which led to a great deal of speculation in the early 19th century in Germany in which there were many theories proposed regarding what it means for Christ to empty himself. Did he set aside his deity? That's what these kenosis theories proposed. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The Greek idea from the word emptied means to pour out until it is gone. To pour out until it is gone. But this is what emptied does not mean. Sadia? I can't bend. Thank you. He did not cease to be God. 
He did not abandon his deity. We've already established that in, that in his essential being, he is in his essence God. He has the morphe, the attributes of God. John Calvin has written the, the 16th century theologian, Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead, Godhood, but he kept it concealed for a time. He laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. And yet, there were moments when Christ revealed it. For instance, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when he gathered Peter, James, and John, and they got a glimpse of that glory revealed. But as the Lutheran scholar Lenski has written, yet even in death, Jesus had to be mighty God in order by his death to conquer death. So what does emptied mean? Think of it this way, not of what did Jesus empty himself, but what into, but into what did Jesus empty himself? I hate analogies, but it'd be like me taking this and pouring it into a, another container. I'm emptying it. I didn't plan that. But into what did he empty himself? And Paul answers that in everything that follows in verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7 there. He, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The word form is the same word we just read earlier, morphe. He has the qualities of a doulos in the Greek. The word servant would be better translated slave. Doulos, from, which, from the Greek word doulos, he he has the attributes of a slave. Christ the Lord entered history not as Lord or the Greek word kurios, but as slave doulos. Like a king who puts down his crown and takes off his majestic robe and puts on the rags of a slave and comes out of the palace to help a poor and destitute people. Mark 10, 45 says, Christ came, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What does it mean that he emptied himself? The king has left his throne. Oh, what a mystery. The mystery of incarnation. How unfathomable the thought. How are we to think of this? John Hendrickson, the commentary, commentator, has written, and he cites 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, which says that though he, Christ, was rich, yet for your sake he became poor that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, he gave up everything, even himself. His very life, 
So poor was he that he was constantly borrowing a place for his birth. And oh, what a place. A house to sleep in, a boat to preach from, an animal to ride on, a room in which to institute the Lord's Supper, and finally a tomb to be buried in. Moreover, Christ took upon himself a debt, a very heavy debt. His debt, voluntarily assumed, was the heaviest that was ever incurred by anyone. Isaiah 53, 6 there. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The king gave up his riches. The king gave up his honor. The sovereign creator chose to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, rejected and smitten of men, scorned and spit upon. He left the glory which with he had with the Father before the world began, John 17, 5. And look at, look at verse 7. Being born in the likeness of men, he literally had the essence of humanity. He really was a human. He was, as we stated earlier, he was truly and fully man. And just as he was truly and fully God, two natures in one person. And in verse 8, being found in human form. The NASB says, being found in the appearance as a man. Not only internally did Christ have the attributes of humanity, but externally he really looked like one of us. Indeed, Jesus experienced the things that human ex humans experience. He came into this world through the natural process of birth, albeit a virgin birth. He was clothed like any other baby. He grew up like any other child with brothers and sisters. He was raised by a lowly mother and a tradesman father. And the first 30 years of his life were lived in obscurity. And when he did embark on his ministry, no one knew who he was. John the Baptist had to point him out. And in John 1.29, he uttered these words. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And even as Christ continued his ministry and performed miracles, people still questioned who he was. Those who should have known the religious leaders who were scholars of the Old Testament should have known, and yet they rejected him. They didn't deny his power, they just said it came from hell. And Jesus said to them, for this I have been born, John 18, 37. Jesus was born to die. And in this emptying process, when he pours himself out, he pours himself out to the point of death. Look at there in verse 8. 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We like to wear crosses around our necks, and it's a, it's a beautiful piece of jewelry. And yet in the Roman times, it was the most brutal form of execution. And it was meant for slaves. Remember, Jesus came into this world as doulos, slave. And the, those who spoke of the execution upon a cross described it as a thousand deaths. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Deuteronomy 21, 23 says. And Jesus poured himself even to the point of death upon a cross. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 12. You talk about somebody... Isaiah is, is a prophet written some six to seven hundred years before Christ came. And Isaiah should, has often been called the fifth gospel alongside Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And listen to the language. You would think that Isaiah read Philippians 2. Listen to the language of Isaiah in 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. Speaking of Christ. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Why? Paul wrote to Timothy in the final days of Paul's life. It is a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Listen to the words of the fourth century theologian, St. Augustine. As he writes such poetic words on the doctrine of the incarnation the mystery of the incarnation man's maker was made man that he ruler of the stars might nurse at his mother's breast that he the bread might hunger the fountain thirst the light sleep the way be tired on its journey that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be bit, beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that he, the life, might die. Or do you marvel at the wonder that is Christ? He emptied himself even to the point of death on the cross. But Jesus Christ is not dead. He is alive and the tomb is empty. 
Christ's humiliation is a descent from his birth to the cross. But the ascension begins with an empty tomb at his resurrection. Look at verses 9 through 11 as I bring this to a close. Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, truly exalted. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice there in verse 9, it says that God has highly exalted him. That phrase, highly exalted, is found only here in the New Testament. It means to be super exalted. Super exalted. And so as we've been going through the book of Hebrews recently, we, see, we have learned that the mediator has passed through the heavens, Hebrews chapter 4. He was lifted high above the heavens, Hebrews 7. He ascended far above all the heavens, Ephesians 4.10. His super exaltation means that Christ received the place of honor and majesty, seated at the right hand of God's throne, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come, Ephesians 1, 20 through 22. Super exalted, high above the heavens, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And God has bestowed upon him, Jesus, the name which is above every name. Not Jesus, that was his earthly name. But Kurios, Doulos, has been named Kurios, Lord. Jesus given the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one born as a slave. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord when he comes again and consummates his glory at his second coming without exception, even those who are in hell will confess him as Lord and bow their knee to him. Yes, hell is a real place. Hell is a real place of judgment. It is not separation from the presence of God because God is present in his judgment and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord and so if you're here this morning and you've never bowed your knee to Christ and confessed him as Lord, you will either confess him in this life or the life to come and then judgment. But Romans 10 offers you this. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For whoever confesses Jesus as Lord shall be saved. That is the promise if you repent and turn to Christ before it's too late 
For us as believers, we have discussed the mystery of the incarnation. And may God grant you and I to marvel at the mystery, to behold the wonder of Jesus Christ who left divine glory and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and who is now seated, super exalted to the right hand of God. And may, out of humble gratitude, we live a life of obedience and worship in awe of the one who alone is worthy. Amen. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.